open what? To the last of this semester's uh, library outreach scholar series. And I've been really looking forward to this one. Um, over the last year and a half, I've, I've been fortunate, um, very fortunate, to um, get to know our featured speaker a little bit. I've been uh, uh, looking forward to seeing how can portray mathematics in a very interesting way to non-mathematics because he does that with me all the time. And so when he volunteered to uh, be part of the Campus Read uh, discussion series, I knew he was going to be the perfect speaker. Okay, uh, But before we get to introducing uh, our future I want to let you know that we do have one other major event coming up this semester still. Uh, December 5th at 4.30, we will be screening uh, the HBO film of the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, and then we start back up again uh, right away in January with, with more speakers. In fact, the, the first speaker of second semester, January 16th. Uh, our own uh, faculty member, Jason Swedeen, will be talking about the right way to feel about Gila, pride, prejudice, and beyond. Who knows what that means, but I'm sure it'll be really interesting. Okay. So, uh, I just ask everybody to turn off their cell phones, beepers, whatever they have, and also know that there's coffee, in the back that you guys are welcome to enjoy. And now we're ready to introduce our featured speaker. Uh, Professor Rob Kipka is a native of the UP. He grew up in Marquette, did his undergraduate and master's work at Michigan Tech, his PhD at Western Michigan University, then a postdoc at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I always ask speakers to share with me one thing about themselves that other people would probably not have any idea that, that this is something that they've done. But one thing uh, about Rob is that he used to work on an organic vegetable farm in so it'll be interesting to see whether or not he's able to work that into the talk. We'll see. Uh, so please join me in welcoming our own Professor Rob Kipka. Kind of 
started to think of this as a talk that's like, you know, it's like about what it means to be a mathematician in some sense. So I want to tell you three things related to the book. It's great. You go wherever you want, Ron. Okay. So I want to tell you three things that um, a good mathematician should be, in my opinion. It's just my opinion. But one thing is critical. So like a good mathematician, anything that comes across their path, especially if it's mathematics, they should criticize. You should think, is that really right? Is that really true? You know, and then uh, and the great thing about mathematics is then you can check. You can prove it for yourself and you can understand, like, yeah, that's right. And now I get that in, in my way. And um, another thing about being a mathematician is uh, you should enjoy making connections. So you know, you find something in this field, and you think, oh, that's so cool, that's just like this thing over here, and then that's just like this thing over here. And in fact, there was a famous mathematician named um, Stefan Bonnach who said that a mathematician is someone who studies, um, or rather, makes analogies between theorems. And a great mathematician is someone who makes analogies between analogies. So we'll, we'll just try to be like, Mathematician, it's not great. Mathematician. Uh, and then the last thing is that a mathematician should have um, some sense of, of wonder and should allow themselves to, to find like um, some sense of beauty in what they're doing. So and I think that all three of these things are uh, So the first is um, is this sort of criticism. And uh, I was reading the book and I read this this line, uh, which is. You know, they're talking about HeLa cells, and they say, well, there were so many of these HeLa cells that had been made, that had been grown in culture, that they could wrap around the Earth uh, several times. So even once actually would be quite a bit, right? Um, that, that's quite a distance. And they even say in the book, uh, it sounded crazy, but it was true. So this is the first question is, uh, is that even possible? Is it, is it really possible that they have grown so many HeLa cells that if you put them end to end, they would go all the way around the Earth? And then also, like, okay, how long would that take? How long would something like this take? So that's the first question we'll ask. Uh, and to answer this question, we need to, to figure some stuff out. So first is, how big is a HeLa cell? Everything here, with apologies to Mark, is in, is in metric. So they're, uh, they're 20 micrometers across on average. So a micrometer is one one millionth of a meter. And so that means that in a meter, like in, in this, there are 50,000. And if you put them end to end, this is how long it would be. So okay, so a lot of these numbers just get they get to be so you have a lot of zeros on the end. So if you want to picture um, how much this is, uh, the population of Chippewa County, if they were the size of Cells, they would be to here. That's 37,000. So then this is 50,000. So that's a lot. That's that's a lot in a meter. And then you know you can imagine, okay, I take these meters and that's a lot in a meter. And then you know you can imagine, okay, I take these meters and I make a line all the way down to like Rudyard. That's a lot of meter six. Each one of them, 50,000 Hela cells. And uh, really, you're just getting started, right? Actually, you should go all the way down to the Mackinac Bridge. You can imagine like driving down to the Mackinac Bridge on I-75 the whole time. You're like zipping by these meters, each one 50,000. And actually, that's that's like nothing. It has to go all the way past Lansing, like all the way, you know, Gulf of Mexico, South America, the Antarctic, and now it's halfway. It has to go 
all the way back around the other side of the earth and come back from you know northern Ontario all the way back to Suzanne. It's like huge, it's a huge number of cells. So and then okay, we can ask, well, how how far does it really have to go? How do we see it? Roughly 40 million meters in circumference. I'm rounding on some of these things. That's good enough. Um, so okay, we can just multiply right that number by that number, and you can see uh, we would need two trillion cells. So that's another number with a lot of zeros, which is like okay, how many is that? And uh, there's a study actually recently these guys, uh, where they estimated there are around 3 trillion trees on Earth. So you can imagine, this is about the same number, right? It's the same, the same size number. So you can imagine all the trees in Michigan, all the trees in, you know, northern Ontario, all the trees in the United States, Asia, South America, all the trees in the world, is the same size number as the number of cells we would need to grow. So it's a crazy big number. So it's worth asking, like, can, is it really possible, right? Can we really have done this? Okay, so this is what we're going to do, right? We, we're going to assume these cells have everything they need. Uh, they started culturing these cells in early February 1951, and we want to figure out, well, what's the soonest they could possibly have two trillion, which again is a huge number. So we need one more thing, and that is uh, how quickly can you grow these cells? And um, I found a bunch of numbers actually. So let's just be kind of conservative and say a day to, to double the population. That's on the slower end of things if, if you look at these sources. So every day we can double the number of cells if we give them everything that they need. So what do you guys think? How, how long? Well, yeah, start let's start with one cell. Yeah, let's just do that. That's also kind of conservative. Well, so this is population doubling time. So this, that's a good question. And I believe that's included in this, this number. But if a cell, uh, I think what we'll see in a bit, uh, it's not going to matter. That's a good question. Great. So I'm just going to think back. I think good question. So the theory is that all of these cells would be alive by the time it over or let's assume that let's just assume that see so it's population doubling time so it's it's maybe some cells have died but enough cells have replaced them that the population has doubled fair enough yeah we have to make some assumptions I would So, so, so let's see, so cells, it's like... How many cells did you start with on day one? One, one. one, one cell, cell on day one. One cell on day one. So by day two, you have a total of two cells. So yeah, okay, well we can let us show pictures. You need an investment banker for this one, I think. Yeah, so it's a pretty short amount of time, actually. So, that's exactly right. So, okay, right. talk louder. We want to be impressed with you sitting there figuring this out. <laughs> <laughs> we said it was like the fruit. We didn't fly. hear what he said, so it could have well, been like, the fruit, like culturing fruit flies, right? I mean, you start off with you know, we students do this, and it starts off relatively slow, but then it then it then it takes off. Yeah. Right? And so and so then it then it becomes an issue of mortality, uh, and that's why I'm 
Okay. okay. The okay, over so under right now is a mark. And I'm going over. Okay. All right. So after zero days, we have one cell, right? After after one day, we have two cells. So it's it's just doubling, assuming that none are dying. Okay. Three days, eight cells. And it does exactly what you said. Actually, it, it blows up pretty it's quick. It's so pretty. I love those cancer cells. But you can see, like, initially, there aren't so many. But once you get a fair number, it's big numbers that are doubling. And um, so, actually, then it really takes off. And you can see after, I mean, actually, this, you guys are pretty, pretty on the ball, right? So this is okay for me to write, write two to the end. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. sure, yeah, no problem. All right. <laughs> it's tricky to give a mad dog and you don't know your audience. So, okay, so after n days, we have 2 to the n cells. And uh, we want to know, well, when will um, 2 to the n be over 2 trillion? And it's after 41 days. So you're pretty much spot on. You're really smart. Isn't that wild? So if you could give them everything you needed uh, within a month or so, you would have everything. So there were some assumptions. Um, we did assume that these cells aren't dying, but they only have to live for 41 days. So that seems reasonable. Uh, and the bigger assumption is that we're giving them everything that they need, right? And that's probably not a fair assumption. But, uh, right? But, uh, but certainly in the 90s, uh, they would have been able to. And you can, you can imagine that in the 90s, they would have been able to give them whatever they needed. And if they could do that for a month or 40 days, uh, they could do this. So it's, it's likely. And these assumptions actually, uh, in a newborn, so this is also, this is an estimate, but a newborn has about two trillion cells in it, and that happens in nine months. So actually, uh, it's, it's not only possible, but it's actually pretty likely. And it's an interesting thing, really, is that this explosion of cells, this, this really rapid growth, it's sort of, um, like if you think about it, it's really necessary for life, right? In order to have, um, in order to have a newborn, you need two trillion cells, roughly the same number as there are, you know, trees in the world, and you need that in as there are, you know, trees in the world, and you need that in about nine months. So it's interesting. The book made it sound like, oh, well, imagine that. There's enough of these cells around that we could wrap the whole planet over. But it turns out that just all of us who don't know about simple biology. It is surprising. I mean, I think it is surprising. If you think about the size of the number, how quickly you can get there by doubling. But it's just as surprising that a newborn baby has enough cells. That if you, so apparently, if you see, well, yeah. Well, this is about a baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is another. <laughs> you don't have to half stretch your girls. <laughs> you can stretch them all the way around the world. Yeah. Right. That is surprising. <laughs> see, that's even more. Surprising. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that's all right. All right. Okay, so it's like so. Then the rest of this talk is sort of about doubling, and uh, how does this doubling show up in other ways? So um, I want to talk about what I want to define something that I want to call a doubling function, and uh, it's just going to give us this whatever n we need. I guess I can't get close to that. Okay. Same distance away from the speaker. So I'll, I'll show you, we'll just say, okay, n of x is the x1 or 2 that gives me x. We're just going to define this function. And we can say it's the number of doublings I need to get to x. Okay, this is 
guys want to mention it? So what is n of one? Right, it's one, right? I need one doubling to get to two. And how about n of eight? No. Two doublings are going to be four, right? So three. Yeah. No. Two doublings are going to be four, right? So three. Yeah, because, and so two cubed is eight. Right. So it's just the exponent that I put on two to get eight.
So it's a, it's a useful function. And we can use it in, in other areas. So we can like we can use it to understand the game of 20 questions. And uh, this this game works like this. You I pick a word, and let's let's say that we're gonna restrict ourselves just to words. And then you ask me questions, and let's say that your questions have to have yes or no answers. And if you can guess my word, then um, then you win the game. Right? You get 20 questions. So with uh, one question, you can if you were only allowed to ask one question, you could get to one word. You could be like, is it a fish? No, it's not a fish. All right, then we're done. All right, with two questions, you can do uh, two words, right? You can really just check two different words. So what about three questions? Eight, right? No. Well, how, how eight? That point. Because you just told me that each time you double. I'm trying to learn. Oh, no, no, you're, you're, you're like a pattern. There's a pattern. There's a pattern here. There's a pattern, but, but it's not that. It's, it's close to that. But let's think about it. With three three questions, I can get to four words. And the way it works is, you, you know, you don't just ask. You ask, like, category questions. You say, like, well, is it an animal? So each one of these dots you can think of as a question. So the first dot at the top, you say, is it an animal? Yes. So now I'm down at this other dot. Does it swim in the water? Yes. Is it a fish? So on the bottom, you put all your, you know, is it this questions. So you can get to, to four words this way. So that means that uh, with four questions, you could get to eight words. Right? And you can kind of think, okay, well, that means with n questions, I could get to two to the n minus one words. That's, right? Here back up. So two, here back up. So two, two to the four minus one is eight. Two to the three minus one is four. So is it that your, your, your desired word is at the top, the, the possibility that you're putting on the bottom? Final things. Like, I think I figured out what this word is. And up here is, is it living? And then, is it an animal? Does it swim in the water? No. Uh, is it a bird? Right? And then you would only have eight down here, because you only have four questions. So these, these are like final Final possible words, right? So then we can ask, well, all right, so um, is, does this game kind of make sense? And this is, according to Oxford English Dictionary, there are 228,000 words in the English language, including obsolete words. So we can plug that into our doubling function and just see how many doublings we're going to take to get there, and it takes 17.8. So, okay, 18. <laughs> so you should never lose. Conceivably, so we have to add one, remember? So it's 2 to the n minus 1. So conceivably, you can always win a 20 question. Brooks is 2 to the n minus 1. So conceivably, you can always win a 20 question. I lost the time of guessing what it is. My son was doing it. He's like, what is it? I just think it's all. Yeah, so the key is understanding the kind of work. So, so, the right question. Yeah. Is it bigger than the right box? Half of the things are bigger than a bread box. Half are Yeah, so I mean, okay, so we, uh, How many cells will fit in the bread box? That's well, gross. I don't even want to know. Roughly 1.9 trillion. Depends on being the baby. Okay. I actually have no sense of humor. One thing mathematicians actually like to do is they, they say so, um, and the, the word actually that mathematicians use is, is dual. So there's like a dual point of view on this. And 
and that is that uh, it's, like, it's exactly what we just said, which is that questions should cut the remaining words in half, right? So, um, so we can do this um, instead of asking how many how many words can we get to, we can ask how many words are left, right? So, and this is a good question, right? That's a good question because I cut it in half. So we can we can introduce a halving function, which is the number of halvings it takes to get from one to x. So one half, it would give you one. A quarter would give you two, right? Cutting things in half. Sixteen would give you four, right? Because two will get you to a quarter, and then you have to do two more to get a quarter times a quarter. So okay, this uh, this function looks like this for numbers that are smaller than one. In between one and sixteen, would give you four. Right? Because two will get you to a quarter, and then you have to do two more to get a quarter times a quarter. So okay, this uh, this function looks like this for numbers that are smaller than one, in between one and two. Right? Because you're going to be cutting one in half. So we just won't look past one. Um, but okay, this function is really important in uh, in information theory. It can tell you sort of how much mathematical information in an event. And I, I want to try to illustrate this with cards. So um, so I have it here like a deck of cards. And um, and what we're going to do is say, I'm going to draw a card, and we're going to see is it red or black. So OK, like, it's red. So knowing that, that gives me, like, that gives me sort of one piece of information. And, um, and this guy, Claude Shannon, decided that uh, what we should do here is say, well, what's the probability of an event? In this case, it's one half. Half the cards are red, half are black. And we should say, how many halvings does it take to get there? So it's, it's like asking questions of 20 questions. Each one should cut things in half. So um, if instead I say, well, OK, um, instead of telling you that it's, it's a black card, like what if we look and say, uh, is it going to be spades? Right, so that's that's less likely to happen. So we kind of receive more information when that happens. Knowing that the card is spades, you have more information than knowing that it's black, right? You have more information than knowing that it's black, right? You have twice as much information, really. So okay, that would be in this case, it's two bits of information. Because uh, the probability, so this is a hard thing to explain, but the probability of drawing spades is one-fourth, right? Number of halvings it takes to get to one-fourth is two. So this guy just said, let's, let's say that that's the amount of information. And it's kind of related to the amount of surprise. So like, it's sometimes described as the amount of surprise. So okay, let's say we're going to look and say, is it spades? Oh, it is spades, actually. That's a little surprise. <laughs> that was lucky. So, okay, we can do it again. Like, is it spades? No, it's not. And that's not very surprising. Right? So, is it spades? No. So, when spades does come up, it's a little bit surprising. Right? So, there's spades. Queen has more information is sort of included in it. Queen of spades is um, 1 in 52. So, it takes like 5.7 halvings to get there. So, that's 5.7 bits or shannons of information that you receive if a card is queen of spades. 
So this is this is an interesting thing actually, and you can this guy Claude Shannon used this having function. This is Claude Shannon to prove that you can take something like this wire, and you can actually. I mean, it's no surprise that you can say things like, well, okay, I can put uh, ones and zeros through this wire, like a bunch of engineering and stuff. But this Claude Shannon proved that actually you can put a limit on how much information can go through the wire. So not ones and zeros, but actual mathematical information, which is kind of a wild thing. Not ones and zeros, but actual mathematical information, which is kind of a wild thing. And it really just comes, it's, information is measured exactly in terms of the number of halvings that it for, for information. But it's also called the bit. Bit is a little bit confusing. Don't do that, we'll add 27%. And I should say, actually, the wolves, um, it, one interesting thing about this is that wolves were pretty much completely gone from Michigan by the 1960s. Uh, and like in the early 1900s, actually, there was a bounty on wolves. So if, if you shot a wolf, you could bring it in, you could be paid with it. But in the 60s, then, they put protections on wolves, state and federal protections. And in 1988, wolves reappeared in Michigan. And then, you know, the population grew, and they sort of re-established re themselves. So what I want to do is compare these numbers, or the results of these numbers, to um, US Fish and Wildlife uh, estimates for wolf population in Michigan. And the blue dots here are real wolf population estimates, and the orange dots are what we get if we, you know, just do this. So start with 19 wolves and add 27% for you. Right. And 19 just happens to be how many wolves there were in whatever year you start Well, right? Yes, exactly. Or, or yep. is it just a number that happens to work with your formula? It's a number that, well, of course, so I, I'm looking at the data set and I'm saying, like, I want to modify this so I get something that fits the data well. So I am, I am picking numbers um, that model that data, that describe that data set. But they work pretty well for the first decade. So okay, so in in two numbers, initial population and growth rate, which is twenty seven percent, I have uh, a decent description of ten years of of wolf numbers. But of course, you can see after ten years, this model predicts that the population blows up, just like the cells, and it stops working. And essentially, what's going on here is, you know, when wolves first enter Michigan, uh, they have everything that they need, all the space, you know, all the food no problem, and so they do grow in this exponential way. They do grow like uh, like the cells. Um, but once their population reaches a certain level, it should slow down uh, because you know they've run into people. They have a harder time getting their hands on food, causing food. Um, but okay, so a fair criticism would be to say, well, like this is not that useful because you know it's only good for the first ten years. So we could try modifying the model a little bit. And um, what we can do is, uh, is this. We can say, if this is like the new wolves, right? That 0.27 times B. That's the wolf, like that's, that's how many we add on every year. So what I want is, um, I want to do something like this. And when P is small, this factor that I'm adding on, P over 600, uh, is pretty much going to be zero. So it's like multiplying by one, and I have the old model which worked well as long as P was small, right? Are you taking out the wolves that? Uh, this is, this is, uh, yeah, he should still be here. We could, we could. Yes, this would have seen that I had a semi-intelligent question. That wasn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this 27% includes that. So um, 
It's not like uh, you get 27% um, of the population in pups. You probably get, you know, 30% and 3% dies or something. Okay, good. So that's not that's not a birth rate. That's a net increase. That's a net, exactly. Births, deaths, like migrations back to Wisconsin, everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a new governor there. Okay. <laughs> and the wolves are smart. <laughs> okay. So when P is small, right? Okay. <laughs> and the wolves are smart. <laughs> okay. So when P is small, right? This this factor here is pretty much one, right? And I have the old model, which was good when P was small. If P is close to 600, though then P over 665 is close to one. And now I'm multiplying by something that's close to zero. So the, the number I'm adding on over here is small. And this should slow the work. And what we get is, uh, what is that? Really good. Yeah. Okay, so, so what it looks to me like what you did is you were able to come up with a formula that somehow kind of matched what it is in reality but it's a formula that doesn't necessarily explain anything, right? As opposed to saying, oh. No, it explains a great deal, actually. So if you go back to this formula, oh, okay. this, right. this formula has, uh, so it has three parameters, right? These are, these are the numbers that you get to pick, 19, 0.27, and 665. Okay. So this formula, uh, first of all, it says, I think that the population was initially 19. Which uh, means that probably in 1988, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service slightly undercounted. So probably, and that would make sense actually. These are probably conservative estimates of number. Uh, there's also this 0.27. So that says, all right, uh, if the wolves had everything they needed, that's the rate at which they would grow, 27 percent a year. So um, that's useful data to have. Um, and it also says uh, that the the limiting population, the um, the carrying capacity, is 665. So it's making a prediction about the future also. Um, prediction about the future also. Um, and this data, this is only uh, up through uh, 26 or 20. So these are years on the bottom. These are years since 1988. Uh, and if you add this year and get, uh, get yeah, I mean, so the, there is this like bump here. And that's sort of included. The, the only, so again, like I used data up to here, and then I only have one number after that, but it's pretty spot on. These bumps, like if you want, uh, if you want to account for them, you're going to have to add another parameter. And the model's going to get more and more complicated and less and less surprise. Uh, so within that 30 years, because you're using actual data, you're going to capture all the events that could take place. Lost to disease, lost to any. If you're using yeah, anything that would have, you have a 30-year raw data set that's giving you the parameters for your modeling. So you're good. So it's going to take into account kind of an omnibus. Yeah, like for example, delisting them that should be pretty good to the near future. Anyway, I mean, you don't want to be like, oh, okay, in 40 years, this should, you know, that would be a, that would be a foolish thing to do. But um, but in the near future, this should be pretty good. So I also promised, we have like five more minutes, I promised that I would, I don't know why I promised, I think I suggested even, that I would talk about mathematical beauty. And uh, that was probably a bit of an overreach. But, um, but I'm gonna try real quick. So, um, so I wanna show you um, 
let's back up here. I'll show you two things. Uh, the first is, in this model, there's this intrinsic growth rate, this 0.27. And um, you know, once a mathematician has their hands on a model, then they want to know, OK, I think I suggested even that I would talk about mathematical beauty. And uh, that was probably a bit of an overreach. But, um, but I'm going to try real quick. So, um, so I want to show you, um, let's back up here. I'll show you two things. Uh, the first is, in this model, there's this intrinsic growth rate, this 0.27. And um, what, you know, once a mathematician has their hands on a model, then they want to know, OK, what's going to happen if I change these parameters? What kind of things could happen? You know, what kind of predictions will models like this make? And it's a simple model, right? It looks, it, maybe it looks kind of complicated, but it's relatively simple, right? It's, it's totally understandable, I think, in the course of a 15-minute explanation. So, okay. Um, let me get out of here. And I'll show you. So what I'm going to do is um, adjust the growth rate. Just the growth rate. Everything else stays the same. And this red dot, that's where does the population go? So adjusting the growth rate, um, all it's going to do is get us to carrying capacity faster, right? Like standing too close to these speakers. So all right, but, but actually something really interesting happens. And that is that if I adjust it enough, if I turn it up enough, the wolf population uh, would overshoot their carrying capacity. Right, they grow so quickly at first that they go too high, and then they, then they correct down, and now they're below carrying capacity, so they correct back up, and it bounces a little bit. But that oscillation fades out, and they stay at carrying capacity. But if you turn it up more, um, that oscillation will become sustained. And instead of having a carrying capacity, they will start to oscillate between two populations. Uh, and that's called a period dump or a bifurcation. So all right, it's a different kind of doubling. If I turn it up more, <coughs> that happens pretty quickly. But those, uh, those split, those two split. So that, it's again like a bifurcation or a doubling. And then really quickly, all the powers of two go by. Like uh, you can have you know, 32 different populations that they transition between and then come back even to the first one. So then we're no longer talking about wolves, of course. We're talking about behavior that you can get out of a mathematical model. Because the growth rate now, this number is like um, 254%. Luckily, wolves don't do that. But, but still, okay, it's interesting that a simple model can do this. And if you turn it up enough, you go by, you go by all the powers of two. And beyond the powers of two, uh, you can get things like uh, three. Three is right in here somewhere. Oh, I went too far. It's hard to do, Cindy. Oh, there it was. Ah, that's just best three. Did you guys see three? So all right, let's go back to the slides. If I, what I want to then, then do is look at a graph um, of where was that red dot. And on the bottom there is the growth, growth rate parameter. And at first, when I turn it up, that red dot just holds steady at that line. 
But if I turn it up enough, that line splits in two, into two populations, and then I keep turning it up, those split in two, and there's this like cascade effect. And uh, then you get this crazy mess, and then here's this three, and then out here, just total chaos. So this, this I think this is, uh, this is visually appealing, if nothing else, and there's all kinds of structure in there. Um, it's, it's an example of, um, of behavior that you get from dynamical systems. So you guys have probably seen things like fractals, like Mandelbrot set and all this stuff. These also come from, in fact, even quadratic dynamical systems. So this is a quadratic dynamical system. So that stuff is beautiful. But there's another kind of beauty that mathematicians usually are referring to. Um, and that's, that's harder to kind of get your hands on. So I'll, but here, I'll try it. So I want to show you guys a proof that square root of 2 is irrational. Um, and actually, I've been meaning to come by and do this anyway, so, so we'll just do it now. All right, so, so what you do is this. You suppose that, it's, uh, suppose that it's rational, which means you can write it as a fraction. That's what rational numbers are, right? Okay. We believe. In that case, so it's, it's completely equivalent to um, there's a right isosceles triangle with integer side lengths. Because this side length here is square root of 2 times that. Right? This hypotenuse is square root of 2 times by Pythagorean theorem, right? p squared is q squared plus q squared. So it should be that p is square root of 2 times q. So if I can find uh, a triangle that's a, a right isosceles triangle with integer side lengths, then square root of 2 is rational. And vice versa. Okay, so what I do then is I can take this triangle. Let's suppose that of all those triangles, I take the one with uh, smallest value for q, so smallest integer length. And since they're integers, there should be a smallest one. And then what I can do is this: I'm going to construct a new triangle that also has integer lengths. And we'll see, like, well, that's impossible because I started with the smallest one, so it must be an irrational. So I just swing that leg up. And it cuts the hypotenuse in, into two pieces. One is length q, because I've rotated. And then the rest is down there, p minus q, which is definitely smaller. And, um, oh. and then, this is a little tricky, but this is perpendicular, and I just send that down. And then you can check, and this we have to, you know, I don't want to do a lot of calculation. But with a little bit of playing around, you can show that that down there is 2 so that's a smaller triangle, uh, and that's impossible. Smaller triangle with integer sides. This and this really is a beautiful proof. This is a, a kind of a non-standard proof that square root two is irrational. But it's hard, right? I mean, it's it's hard actually to convey mathematical beauty. You have to study it a lot. And there's all kinds of stuff like this. So in in uh, 18th century, Leonard Euler proved that this series. We'll get as large as we want, so it goes to infinity. And this series is, um, you're just taking all the prime numbers, you look at their reciprocals, right, you add them up. And <coughs> in the mid-20th century, Erdős showed, without even assuming that there are infinitely many prime numbers, he showed the same thing through a really simple Kalman argument. And it's a beautiful little Kalman argument. And it's a beautiful group. There's no question about it, it's stunning. And I can show it to you, but you should come by my office, I'm sure. But I mean, this is the thing, it's, it's tricky to see, like, you, you know, you have to you have to work in it a little bit. Or else, you know, you can look for stuff like this, which is aesthetically appealing. So I'll leave you then with this quick quote 
This is from uh, Fields Medalist. Fields Medalist is like the Nobel Prize in Mathematics. And uh, she's the first woman to win Fields Medal in 2014. And uh, should I read this? Can you guys read this? So what she says is, I don't think that everyone should become a mathematician, but I do believe that many students don't give mathematics a real chance. And then somewhat surprisingly, she says, I did poorly in math for a couple of years in middle school. I was just not interested in thinking about it. But I can see that without being excited, mathematics can look pointless and cold. The beauty of mathematics only shows itself for patient followers. And this, I think, is really true. So, um, so there's two things. One is, again, you know, if you're talking to a middle school student and she doesn't find mathematics interesting, she finds it pointless and cold, uh, she could be Mario Marzicani. She could be a field specialist. You never know. Um, so you should be patient with her. And um, you should be patient with mathematics, you know. So if, uh, if you see mathematics as pointless and cold, you know, you should take some time and try it again.